0: Welcome to DOS, a conversation in and around exhibitions. In this episode, designers and publishers David Reinfurt and Stuart Bertolotti-Bailey focus on the Scott Burton section of Greater New York at MoMA PS1. The exhibition was curated by Peter Ely, Douglas Crimp, Thomas Lacks, and Mia Locks. It was a cold, sunny day. Their conversation is interpreted by Shannon Harvey as David and Sarah Demuse as Stuart. Is it hot in here? It's pretty hot. Alright. What did you find so interesting about Scott Burton's room? Well,
1: (laughs) I like that thing a lot. Why? Most for what it looks like. But also because it's a model for an artwork. And that the work that it's a model for is not quite an artwork, or not clearly an artwork rather than a piece of furniture, let's say. Plus, the model has a person in it. And finally, it's clearly artificial. Burton wanted it to look a certain way, and there's something about how stylized it is that's at odds with the work being proposed as functional. Yeah. I guess it also feels simple in a way that a theater set feels simple. The title listed on the label is Model for Seating for Eight, 1985. And it's not listed as an artwork in the room. It's not on that list of works on the wall over there, So it's like, what is it? So that's what I thought was also interesting, especially when you see the marble and metal sculptures right here in the same room, fully physical and absolutely material. And then you see this small model. It's still only an idea, a design for the thing that hasn't been realized. Hmm. The other thing that I like, now I'm going all the talking, is that I don't like the forms necessarily.
0: Well, I can sort of expect and understand why you like this work and the terms on which you say why you like it. I have an impulse to push you on this, however. Do you remember Alfred Korzybski, the Polish linguist and philosopher who Angie wrote about in the last issue of Dot, Dot, Dot? She described how he'd he students by trying to get them to say a more root-level version of whatever they had said, ever closer to to the fundamental meaning, and sometimes revealing that there wasn't any. She described his method as reducing the student to... (laughs) Glubbering mass. Am I the student now? Well, I feel like doing something similar and saying, why would a tenuous border between functional and abstract be interesting, or something to get excited about? Or... What is that thing that it does? Mm. This makes me think about what we were talking about the other day in Philadelphia. We were trying to get at what is that artistic surplus or competence that distinguishes it from other things that might fall more readily on the side of just being sculpture for the sake of its form, just being functional for the sake of its function. I think it is striking that at least halfway through the exhibition, we've already seen two directly fashion-driven works, Slow and Steady Wins the Race and Susan Cianciolo, and that this works in a similar way.
1: I think those Seth Price calendars, which shared the room with Slow and Steady Wins the Race, do something similar. And that's why I liked those a lot when I first saw them years ago, and why I still like those here. The work puts on a rhetoric of being useful, although obviously it's not. And it also in the way it links itself to a place in the world outside of itself. For example, to where calendars hang, and also, of course, to temporality more broadly. But what's to like in thinking about where calendars hang? Because it's not something I usually think about. It's similar to when I'm in a foreign country and see a different kind of door handle. I'm so used to the way a door handle looks and the way it works so that when I see a new kind of door handle, then I become super attuned to its form and it makes me see other door handles as equally strange. It's pretty simple, but to me, that's a much more powerful experience than say a narrative painting. But then I don't really love to hear a story. I don't really like plot. That's overstated, but also pretty true. A plot doesn't easily draw me in It's the one thing after the next, like writing, the literalness of it. It's not as exciting to me as something formal, spatial, experiential. Those kinds of things sit with me stronger. I'm now finally reading Infinite Jest, very much enjoying it. It's a wash of words, and I don't particularly care where it's all going. What I'm interested in is at any moment how nice it is to read. And for now, anyway, that's drawing me in. I don't really care much about how it resolves. This is probably why my points of reference aren't often films or novels.
0: Because they are too literal?
1: I guess so. One of my favorite films is Dead Man by Jim Jarmusch. The atmosphere is beautiful, it's kind of mystical, and yes, there is a story, but the story's certainly not the most important part. Rather than starting from a story, it seems that Jarmusch started with an idea of what he wanted to see on screen. Johnny Depp as a confused East Coast accountant named William Blake, misrooted to the Wyoming frontier, stagging around with a Native American friend named Nobody, killing settlers, spouting the poetry of the other William Blake. The plot runs something like this. William Blake takes a long train to Machine City for a job he never had stands up a fugitive, kills many men, gets in a canoe, floats off to his own death, it's excellent. But mostly for the intensely dreamlike atmosphere conjured by Jarmusch's high contrast, black and white photography, the poetry of William Blake and the soundtrack by Neil Young.
0: Back to the room. Could you just simply say what you enjoy about the collection of objects?
1: I think it's the distance between them, not the physical distance, although maybe that too. In this room, there are four things. The chair, that table, and the whatever it is, seat, and the other seat. I suppose you look at these objects, and there are lots of formal chimes. Like the angle on that chair, and the angle on that thing. There's a similar idea implied in how a body fits in it. But they also look quite different. These are not ideas about sitting. These are different ideas about the form of the thing that makes sitting possible, and how that form communicates. So in this room, it could just be those sculptural furniture objects, and that might be interesting enough to me. But then I see that chair. It looks willfully naive. The material of it, what, it, what is it, steel? It looks like just the raw material rolled out and reduced to simple, even simplistic forms. It looks like you could sit in that chair, but you wouldn't be very happy about it, or at least not for long.
0: And that's interesting because, I mean, I'm being sadistic, but I think it's easy enough to justify any of those things on a first level by talking about the tension between this and that, the form of construction, because it focuses you on the nature of the construction, or the cultural effect of different materials, or the fact that the work looks like it would belong in the 80s and another would belong in the 50s. There's a sort of infinite regress. So what? These are tools for thinking. When we were making identity, we were looking and thinking about Peter Behrens. And we were talking about his attempt to make an equivalence between the forms of manufactured products, industrially produced on a mass scale, and the graphics or identities or sales brochures used to sell those things there was an almost positivist idea that if that happened it would make for a better more organized world
1: more like absolutely positivist so you're more convinced
0: by that well no but i want to draw some sort of line between what Barron suggested and what it looks like burton did says was an approach to design or a design practice that wasn't only fulfilling expectations built on conventions, but he was advancing something out of the ordinary that came from design itself. I want to draw a line between that and this, but maybe it isn't there. There's definitely a line. Behrens' seems a more reasonable and perceivable target for this kind of work. I'm convinced by that argument, what the intention was, whether or not that was successful. And I can't get as clearly to the bottom of that intention with work that straddles the border between furniture and sculpture.
1: I was surprised to learn that Scott Burton wrote plays first, then our criticism, then he wrote plays as vehicles for his furniture designs. These plays were scenarios for moving people around stage, animating his furniture sets. Finally, he cut out the writing entirely and just got on making furniture as artworks. All of this is intimately connected to design, e- even if it's not sailed under that flag. Anyway I found this transition interesting.
0: But then it looks like the value in that biographical career is the same as how you explain the work in the sense that it's unconventional or out of the ordinary, Well which can be a value or an end in itself. For me, that's not it. It's the
1: absurdity. That's what gets me excited, formally and conceptually. The shapes are
0: so... But in the same way that an absurd humor would? Or an absurd joke? Or a non sequitur? Yes, I think so.
1: But it's absurd and cool. There's a degree of coolness to it. And that helps the absurdity become something more like nonsense. The sculptures look quasi-rational but then the forms are just so simple. Mix that with Burton's interest in the social scripting of these objects, because it looks like a chair, or actually is a chair, then the social context would say, sit down in it. But it's so arty, this strange looking assembly, that it also repels someone from doing what its form invites, sitting down. These look a shade too absurd, a bit too cool, or too pretentious and off-putting. One way it gets here is by shaving off the detail. But no more so than a piece of IKEA furniture. Well, yes, more so, I think. Because the shapes don't... Well, you look at them and they could never be IKEA furniture.
0: Isn't that because they're more ostentatious than IKEA furniture? Yeah. It's so close to decoration, right? That's what I'm responding to. Definitely
1: decoration. There's no reason why that's terrazzo marble and it's finished like that. Or the brass or copper heads on those figures or the patterning throughout, there's no clear reason for it. The patterning is also part of what I like in the model. It's so clearly rationalized. It's built from geometric building blocks and the patterns mark the surface part or something false or merely decorative. It's all just a set, I guess. Burton's chairs are often shown in exhibitions, but the unwritten intent is that visitors can sit in them. Of course, who dares? And here they are presented on small pedestals, which suggests to me that sitting would quickly attract the wrong kind of attention. Anyway, his intent was always that you could sit on his furniture sculptures, right? So there's attention. It's a reciprocal ready-made. The painting that you turn into an ironing board.
0: Yeah, but in this room right now, there isn't any. There's no tension, because you're not allowed to sit. But you're always looking. And
1: like the Susan Ciancelo room we just walked through, this is also presented in a gallery, but not allowed to work the way it should. Still, even having these ideas represented raises many of their questions.
0: But it dismantles
1: that tension, yes? I suppose it does. And that's why I get so excited about the model. The setup in this room left space for the model to work. It's presented as the thing it is, a model for future artwork, furniture design. And this model is the model for Burton's idea of functional sculpture. When I saw the model, I simply thought,
0: I love this. Hmm. I found it richer to think about the cuts through the building by Gordon matta Clark, also presented here. It's just a simple idea that by cutting holes through the three floors, the hole negates the function of the door. But it's doing that in a very tangible way. You can't go through the door without falling through the building. And that, even in anecdotal form, seems to me more powerful as a carrier. Yeah, maybe.
1: But they're working very differently. It's not just like the temperatures are different. They're working fundamentally at odds. These, the Burton's, are functional hardly ever, even as public sculpture. People can sit on them, but not sit comfortably. So in that way, they fail as furniture. Model for seating for eight. I looked it up online earlier, and it's eight seats, each of which look like the one in this model, set around in a circle. So what's the point? It's a sculpture, a public sculpture, right? And it looks like public seating, but it's not really. At least not practically. What's the point to that? Sculptures. They're good. What's good about them? I don't know. They're sculptures. Art, absurdity, nonsense. It's pretty interesting to think about with the Matt Clark. They're two sides of the coin, almost.
0: Sort of. I think just one is raised to a pedestal and the other isn't. I mean, literally. Yeah, maybe. Can you say one of the questions that these raise for you?
1: Maybe, but not in a way that won't sound trite, but I'll try. The question is mystical or spiritual and probably metaphysical. Why are those two figures like that? They're a different scale than the other objects in this setup. That middle block is also a different scale than the tables on the side. And the figures brass heads, they don't feel coherently part of anything. So then it's just a bit of a jumble. But the title on the wall label, Model for the Last Tableau, suggests that these are all part of one scene. I guess I'm just imagining after reading the biography that those must be part of a play or performance. Are these maquettes? Scale gets tossed out the window, and that's why I'm left with this cosmic question, which could also be simply, where do these things come from? And what are they supposed to be here, now? When I see a photograph on the wall, Typically, its indexical status is pretty clear to me. Same thing with some text-based works, like see the Glenn Ligon piece we just saw in the room with the Clark. There, on many blown-up pages of a wall, was listed every place the artist has lived in New York. That work is great, no question. Very powerful. But also, I don't leave with a question about what that is. I know that kind of communication. Where is this tableau? I don't know what to make of it. What do you think of that work in the doorway? Park MacArthur's posy restraint.
0: I don't know if I think of it as anything substantial. Let's see. It's a contraption with a nylon mesh and padded cuffs that holds a person's limbs in place hung to block the doorway. So, it's a thing that restrains, obviously. And on the face of it, it looks interestingly weird, here in its dumb, pseudo-functional, slightly frightening way. The fact of putting up a restrainer that prevents you from going from one room to another is absurdly simplistic, childish even. Nonetheless, it's a sort of gesture that I, you, we enjoy. I think this kind of work has to have the right kind of weight. I'd almost say that the lightness of the object and the dumbness of hanging it here is in line with the idea's throwaway quality. It's sort of slapstick. The thing I often find myself thinking when I see art I don't like is that its realization in terms of cost or scale seem out of proportion to the idea. They don't match. The heaviness of money or power or materials involved seems out of sync. It's unusual for me to find things that feel adequately aligned in this sense, inevitable or inequivocal. I'm always thinking, why this way and not that? I want conviction. I want to be convinced. I think that's why, again, the Mata-Clark thing seems so exemplary. Although you can imagine it was a huge and difficult thing to realize for many reasons, the thing itself almost feels non-existent. It's like air, and it covers up all the structural, institutional reasons that it took to make it.
1: Really? Well, I like Matta Clark's work for its literalness in revealing what made it possible. Often it's a case of moving something and then displaying, without diagramming, The relationships that made it possible and so it's that direct connection with the circumstances around it that I like in particular.
0: I'm being devil's advocate here but back to that model with the cosmic vibe. The last tableau, Guardian Cabinets.
1: It sounds awesome. I enjoy the childlike conflation of furniture with people very much. Like I'm gonna make some furniture in the form of men. And then what would it be? And what materials would it be realized? So there's something about how funny or stupid or throwaway that is relative to the ponderousness of the materials or the seriousness of that impulse. And if that was a fully realized version of a sculpture, that would seem to me out of proportion with the idea to follow your criteria for what makes a good work. So the fact that it's a model, obviously still superficially beautiful, cute even, seems equal to what I like about registering a meeting of those two things, the human form and furniture form. It's almost like a Saul Steinberg cartoon, right? Different styles, different materials. It wears its style so much on the surface, that then you question why this, why not that? And that also makes it funny, to me anyway. And the art, design, functionality question This mitigates it considerably. That chair is funny.
0: It's quite stupid looking even. It also reminds me of Andrea Zetel's show at the Dia when it was still in Chelsea. It was a retrospective. It had the desert living capsules and you could walk through particularly designed kitchens and things. As you went into the gallery, there was a list called Things I Learned. It was a sort of manifesto. I guess it was substituted for a didactic to read the show. And it included thoughts like, the more you use something, the better it gets. Fairly obvious ideas about design, but all to do with actual use rather than with things functioning purely as gestures. As you walk into the show, the first thing you come to is a kind of modeled interior of one of these living things that looks like you can walk through. I stepped inside it. And the guard immediately said, you can't walk into that thing. And everything in the show was like that. It had this complete contradiction. But the important thing for me was later in that day, when I found a little installation of a work by Mark Lecky called Drunken Bakers. It was in the back room of a bar called Passerby. It was this little room and a projection of this film which is more or less a slideshow that shows these line drawings of bakers that do nothing but get drunk. Just frames of about 10 seconds each that vaguely tell us what the comic strip story is and it's appropriated from a magazine in Britain called Viz. That's it. That's the show. The floor of this interior was painted super perfect bright wide. And because it was the middle of the winter, the floor was completely filthy. I'd like to think that this was completely intentional. The filth of that floor was totally the same as what is abject about this film. And I thought that's such a perfect thing because with Zittels, you couldn't even walk on the floor of the work. There's something that is to do with the realization of the presentation of both of those pieces of work, or as representatives of their practice, I guess. It's something that I get more out of or as much out of as the work itself. And I think, again, it's the fact that these, in the case of the furniture in this room, that they're on pedestals. There's no actual ambiguity about use or not. Versus what the Matt Clark thing does, which is more immediate and at first glance lighter. That seems so much more powerful to me.
1: I wouldn't necessarily disagree. Here, the bird room is just a reference to all of his works at large. But with that model for seating for Eight, I was so excited because it offers a visible hinge with the world. You could think of it as the thing it models, the seating sculpture, or you could equally think of it as what it is, the model of that future thing. This is typical, of course, of any model, but here the model is also highly stylized and prominently includes a figure in it which makes me think about its use by a person, and I mean it makes me consider the use of the final seat as well as the use of this model. Anyway, the work seems to me to offer an adjustable relationship to the world. So it's more a set of parameters for thinking rather than a one-dimensional tool for thinking. And that's completely different than reflecting on a film which gives a story that's a parable for thinking about the world. For a painting or another sculpture, this is essentially interactive. It's something that you have to manipulate to use, and still in mean both the model and the eventual seating. The matta Clark photographs now work as representations as opposed to how the original work worked. Although I very much like that because they're hung in the same physical location as the original work was staged, then they make you think about what's underneath their exhibition here and now. So maybe that's not so clear.
0: I'm just projecting that to the real world. That seems the case even with the presentation of the representation of that work. It seems spiritually aligned with the Mada Clark by simply putting it in the same place. Often those moments in shows like this, the hinge between the work and how it's shown, seem more useful to think about than anything else. But the Mada Clark
1: work, there's still pictures that reveal previous facts. And that's very different. With the model, I think almost purely about the future. And I'm just imagining all the multiple responses to the real sculpture in its real setting. It's a bit like how Nicolas Bourriaud describes relational aesthetics, as a fleeting image that emerges from collective activity. I don't know what that fleeting image ever looks like, but I do know it. I feel it. I totally buy
0: it. Another way of thinking about these is how the other day we were at Princeton sketching those ideas for possible interfaces of digital computer watches and talking about how the value of sketching things is often not to just realize the idea that you started with in order to sketch it as a representation of that idea, but in order that it might work backwards from where that sketch takes you and go off on a trajectory. And I could definitely buy a case for these sculptures as fossilized sketches or something, whether for themselves or for other people, that they are ideas, sketches realized to such an extent in terms of forms, materials, and structures, and trying to make those explicitly present as foundational elements or something, done in such a way that they give you a key to think about chairs sitting in a way that you might not have beforehand. And now I'm talking particularly from another designer's point of view, rather than as an audience. Because often the claim of art making you see the world in a different way is such an overblown and easy saying that I have a hard time thinking it's actually true. But from a designer to a designer, or a maker to a maker, I could more readily get that the lesson is about the designers rather than the people using electric fans, light bulbs, or furniture. Thank you for listening in. DOS Audio is produced and edited by Ezra Tabul and Seth Clouette. DOS Conversations are instigated and edited by Sarah Demuse in collaboration with the original speakers. Join us again next time.